I'm Evertrue CEO Brent Grinna, and this is The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and they're challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct, it's being reinvented. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. On today's show, we welcome Anna Schlia, Senior Director of Advancement for the Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester. To understand Anna's commitment to this sector, look no further than the fact that she's currently pursuing something pretty unusual for a gift officer, a PhD in fundraising. Today, we'll talk about how her research is changing her perspective on the advancement sector, why misconceptions of fundraising by academic partners are hurting our bottom line, and why we need to be laser focused on prospect interests instead of leading with the needs of the institution. Here we go. Welcome everyone. I am pleased to be hosting our guest Anna Schlia, the Senior Director of Advancement at the Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester. We've known Anna for several years and she has been a great supporter on our journey and I'm excited to learn more about her journey today. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you, Brent. Happy to be here. So this is a special time of year. This is uh, what you referred to as the, the May-June hustle. And I think your quote was that this can bring out the best and the worst in our industry, which is uh, somewhat provocative. So why don't you tell me what's on your mind in the midst of the May-June hustle and, and why you feel that way? Sure, you, I think you only asked how I was doing and I should have answered I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> I think if you talk to any higher ed fundraiser who's on the June, July fiscal year, um, you're gonna come across that the, this season. This season is graduations, maybe we just had a bunch of VIPs to campus or we're honoring um, different faculty, that type of activity, but then most importantly just end of fiscal year. So this is a lot of the wrap-up meetings, the emails from higher up saying where are you, what's going to close, what do you think will happen, uh, and we get to look at our metrics and we get to look into our um, you could use maybe a magic eight ball or a crystal ball to determine how your year is going to end up. So I think it it brings out the metric driven activity, but then also the opportunity or the chance for us to say, have we taken care of our donors this year? Have we really recognized people who have supported us? Yeah, That's I, a long answer for how I'm doing. Yeah, no, look, it, it's, it's uh, definitely an intense time of year. And, and I suspect that there is always sort of a tension between, um, you know, how do you hit the number? How do you deliver the results? But how do you make sure you don't harm lifelong relationships with donors um, in pursuit of that? And so it's, it's a real balance to strike between being super persistent and, and let's say aggressive, but on the other hand, being really passive and, and hoping the gifts will come in isn't a very good strategy either. So curious to get your take on on where on the spectrum um, you know you are or, or where you're trying to uh, get your team to be sure the, it really it really is a spectrum and I don't think that it's either or um, also as a profession we're getting really we're getting a lot better at both we're getting better at identifying the metrics um, with companies like yours we're getting better at 
um, finding out what we should even be measuring in the first place. When we say what is engagement, let's define what that means. We're getting better at looking at those numbers. I think at the same time with movements like donor love and different consultants who are pushing a more <clears throat> holistic, well-rounded, human-centered approach, or we might say donor-centered approach to fundraising, that we're getting better at saying to ourselves as practitioners, uh, this is about them. This is about our donors. They're the ones who are making all of this possible. Uh, there's a lot more research in this field. There's a lot of conversation. The best meme I saw yesterday was the crying woman meme. And it said, she's not your donor, you're her charity. How often do we talk like that in our profession though? I think that we talk about my donors, my donors, my numbers, what I'm doing, how I'm hustling, uh, and the recognition that the role that our institutions play in the lives of our donors is extremely important and significant and requires attention, requires really, really good stewardship and cultivation. And I think that as a profession, we're getting better at, at maybe both of these, this dichotomy. Well, um, that's a good kickoff to the conversation today. And I wish you the best as you balance the June hustle. Uh -huh. uh, and, and we'll try to wrap this up in a timely manner so you can get back to it. But why uh, don't you, how'd you know? <laughs> a little bit of, of your career background um, and, and sort of how you ended up on this podcast today. And, and one thing Robbie's going to dive into is the fact that you are one of the um, few fundraising professionals that we've gotten to know uh, who is uh, been pursuing a PhD. And so that is really, uh, and you're doing that while working uh, uh, at a music school. So you literally are at the intersection of art and science of the sector. And, and I really look forward to getting your take on, on uh, your career path overall, but also what decided you to go down this, this sort of, um, this detour that is, is not very typical. Yeah. Thank you. I love talking about myself. So thank you for the question. Um, so fundraisers love talking about themselves. So we great. love it. Yeah. Our job is to talk, ask other people these questions, but when it's our turn, we just can't help it. This is your turn. It's my turn. I grew up a, a band dork in central Florida and thought that I'd end up in the music business. Went to school at Loyola, New Orleans for clarinet. So um, music is a large part of, of who I am uh, and how I grew up. What are your favorite uh, instruments and do you still play at all today? Uh, I play a little bit. I, my, my donors here at Eastman actually a year ago started encouraging me to pick it back up again. So it's been a long time and it sounds rough, but I'm, I'm trying to, to practice again. Which instruments? Clarinet. Clarinet. Yep. I'm aspire, an aspiring guitarist, so. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was graduated from Loyola, New Orleans, um, where I had the opportunity to be really involved in, in the behind the curtain of student affairs. Um, I was involved in student government and a lot of other organizations. And I think about my time as a fundraiser, going back to this one moment where I was at the Board of Trustees dinner, I was the SGA president, so they let me in. 
And I was sitting next to a board member who I had, I had been chatting up and we were talking and the president walked around and she pulled a check from her purse and she handed it to the president and she said, this should be it for the year. Um, hope you're, you know, hope everything is well. Let me know if I owe you anything else. And just to witness that transaction really was, was just the best way to show me, oh, this is how, this is how this happens. This is how this works. And the, the way that the president responded and, and how I know that we had given her an award and all of these, all of these pieces really came together at a young age for me. I always cared about colleges and universities. Um, and I knew that maybe one day after a rock and roll career in music business, I would get back into higher education. And then that's what happened. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee and worked for country music television and Grand Old Opry. And I produced a lot of live TV shows and music festivals and hippie festivals and um, met some, met a friend who was in the higher ed program at Vanderbilt. Before you dive into the Vanderbilt, I just gotta know, favorite, I'm a huge country music star, uh, fan, huge star, fan. Uh, what were the best, uh, best experiences or like what stands out the most being like in the industry as a young oh, professional? It was, it was so cool. It was, I, um, seeing like the artistry, like a Lyle Lovett, somebody like that up close. Um, he's remarkable. I was really lucky. I got to work with a lot of, um, a lot of amazing artists and also a lot of amazing producers who just made shit happen. And it's still, am I allowed to say that? Yes. Um, good. <laughs> it's stuck with me now, like that energy and drive to make something happen. Um, and, it's really- probably in that environment, there has to be an initial phase of sort of being starstruck. And then I imagine you just got to get over that really quickly, uh, which is probably really helpful when you think about how do you interface with, with donors or high net worth individuals. You know, if you can roll with country music superstars, you can probably um, hang with most, most, most donors as well. I, I haven't thought of it that way, but I think so. You kind of put everything to the side. Remember that these are human beings too. And then if you need to freak out afterwards because you were just, you know, in a mega mansion or were at the UN, I've thought of all the cool places I've been at visits, you know, you just freak out afterwards. Did you ever meet Tim McGraw? Yes. So Tim McGraw is amazing. And I was working on a Faith Hill special. I think it was for NBC. And Tim looked like one of the production assistants that I had. I don't even remember this kid's name, but he was walking away from the production office and I just started screaming at him thinking he was, he was this kid, Joey. And I thought that Joey was ignoring me and uh, I got a little nasty and was screaming. Uh, that's yeah. Well, and that's a special memory. The only time I've ever seen my wife's <laughs> was was around Tim McGraw that's why I asked so that's uh, oh yeah he's awesome cool. so, you, so you're you're really in the mix uh in Nashville and as glamorous as that is I'm sure it's very difficult um as well and so you meet this friend from Vanderbilt and and what happens next he just started telling me about some of the classes he was taking and I uh, I was jealous and he introduced me to Tim Caboni who is to this day, one of my, my, my mentor, the guy I wanna be when I grow up, Tim Caboni was running, 
the Institutional Advancement Program in Higher Education at Peabody College at Vanderbilt. So fancy title for a, a remarkable place um, for a really great guy and wonderful mentor. Uh, he was there really leading the charge on the academic side of fundraising. And when I met him, I said, I'd love to do higher education, but I don't really want to work with students. And we'd only talked for a few minutes and he said, oh, you're going to be a fundraiser. And that was that. Was bad. Tim and his program. Wow. Why do you think he, he made that assessment so quickly? Probably because I was following him around. Um, like literally he was walking from one meeting to the other and I followed him. Um, I, he probably saw that I was there to, to figure things out and to get it done. And um, I think that that's a good skill in a fundraiser. I wasn't afraid to talk to him. And, and, and what do you think because uh, you know, a recurring theme on, on these uh, conversations is really around mentorship. And, and it's so common that there's that one person who early on really sees something or introduces someone to this sector and then takes them under their wing. Uh, you said you want to be Tim when you grow up. I mean, that's a pretty big statement. But what is it about him or his leadership style we haven't met um, that, that really stands out to you? Tim just brings together a lot of what I try to do in the study of fundraisers in higher education, the professionalization of fundraisers in higher education, and then also the external relations piece, which is how do these institutions take care of their constituencies? How do they honor them? How do they, um, how are they responsible to them? So I think the primary reason he's such a good mentor is that he's he asks these big questions, and he continues to ask these big questions. Uh, he's currently the president of Western Kentucky University. And if you follow him on social media, you'll see that he's out there. He's right there with the students. He's right there with the different constituency groups. He's, um, there's a, there was a group of students who were chasing tornadoes yesterday, and he traveled with them. And there he was posting pictures of these kids. Um, they're not kids, they're college students, but out there doing doing this incredible work as a way to showcase the work that his university is doing. What incredible, innovative uh, dedication to your constituency groups. He always let me run with crazy ideas. He trusted me with a lot of information and a lot of responsibility when I was really young and I hadn't quite earned it yet. Um, I think he surrounds himself with really smart people. He's, he's just the type of university president that I think we're gonna start seeing more of, which is they are representing their institution. They are becoming their own, in some ways, own personal brand. Um, and he really is an advocate for or, you know, when, when he was teaching us in institutional advancement pro seminar class, he's an advocate, advocate for the professionalization of our field. And I really, I, I respect him for that. And he's really fun and he's from New Orleans and he's also a great time. I'm definitely gonna follow him on, on Twitter. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting you bring that up. You mentioned personal brand and we are definitely at this inflection point where, at least in the higher ed context, um, you know, if 
if you're a celebrity, you have to have the personal brand. You have to have the Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook presence. And, and if you're a, um, uh, uh, you know, a political leader right now, you, it's not a choice anymore, right? Maybe in 2008 it was still a choice or, or, or around there. But at this point, uh, it's, it's not a choice. And yet we're still in this contest where with higher ed, it hasn't flipped yet, right? The president as personal brand for some comes more comfortable. And I do think that that is going to be um, if you can't take a selfie with students and share it on Twitter or let people have a window into storm chasing in an authentic way, how can you really lead in the next chapter? And, and I think that there's still a lot of uh, university presidents who want to send the mailing with the official letterhead and the fake signature and make it just very buttoned up. Um, and, and it just doesn't feel like higher ed has totally flipped the way that other sectors have yet, where the leader has to have a public personal brand. And the thing is that these public personal brands exist, uh, whether they're on social media or not, but you think about the way that the president is out there representing their institution at all of these different organizations and with the board of trustees, and if they're a, you know, a private institution to different Senators, I mean, they, they have to represent the institution. They also are, they're, they're doing the work, is what I'm saying. They're shaking hands and kissing babies. They're doing the work. And they have to have a personal brand so that they are connecting and serving their faculty. So they're connecting and serving their board of trustees. Um, so for them to have, uh, for university presidents to have a reluctance in promoting that, uh, I think it just stems from maybe just the the fear of change and the reluctance to stand out too much. Um, I think that there are faculty members that, that do this type of work, that they want to be out there. They want to be promoting their research. How do the other faculty members view that? Do they view that as, yeah, good for you. Get your research out there. Get out the name of this institution. Like, pick up that article in the Atlantic, good for you. Or did they see it as, well, why are you bragging? You know? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, when you think about why people were hired to be university presidents and their career path by 2019, it probably wasn't because they've been the best at self-promotion or brand or whatever. I mean, they, they, they typically came up the ranks as you know, academic leaders um, and, and you weren't necessarily required in those roles to to engage in this manner. But I think now, and, and the case we're obviously trying to make is, how do you not think of it, you know, how do you think of it the same way celebrities do, the same way that uh, politicians do, which is this is gonna drive results. By building a personal brand, by being public, I can support enrollment, I can improve yield, I can improve uh, engagement with donors, and all of that can actually impact the metrics that I'm accountable to my board as president. And I think that that's, you know, that wave, obviously, that's why the celebrities are on these platforms, because it helps them sell more music, it helps them sell more product. Um, and I think university presidents need to realize this can help you sell more product, even though that is not a phrase they're probably comfortable uh, with. Oh, that hurts. Yeah, that hurts so much. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, just, it's not just university presidents. We're seeing this responsibility um, fall to deans as well. Um, and even now a little bit more to department chairs. So when they are 
hired, I'm sure there's a committee that's talking to them about fundraising. Are there any fundraisers on that committee? That's a good question to ask, um, to analyze what it is that they, how, how they're answering that question. But what is the dean's responsibility, fundraising responsibility? And what is the dean or the president's view of philanthropy in higher education? Mm -hmm. What biases are they walking into this conversation with? What, uh, what judgment do they have against the development office? Do they trust their team? Uh, these are, uh, this is getting into my area of research of integrating the academic world and the academic leaders with their responsibility of fundraising for their institution and all of the misconceptions and also all of the really good work that can come out of matching our donors with academic leaders. So how did you get from Vanderbilt and Tim's mentorship to that place, right? To this place where you're really taking uh, the research um, approach and, and can't wait to hear about some of your early findings. Yeah, so well, just after graduating from, from Peabody College with my master's in education, um, that was 13 years ago. Uh, I've just been a gift officer. I've been hustling. I've been on the road uh, for the past 10 years. I've been here in Rochester, first at RIT and now at University of Rochester. Uh, just, you know, cranking out my visits, making my asks, connecting donors with the, um, with the work of the university. Because I had that experience at Vanderbilt, I always kept an eye on what research was coming out. I would always sort of take a look at what um, the Association, uh, the Study of Higher Education, ASH, I would see what ASH readers were coming out, that kind of thing. Uh, and then had the opportunity to start taking a class about three years ago. And then that's just, that's just snowballed now into a full, full on PhD. But I'm grateful that I'm coming to this uh, part of my education a little bit older um, and maybe a little bit wiser because I've been in the trenches. I'm in the trenches right now. I've got a trip tomorrow to Michigan. I leave at 5 a.m. I'm still doing the work, but I'm also able to ask some of these really big questions of where is our profession going? As you're developing you know, that perspective from the PhD, I would imagine it would be interesting to donors to talk about as well. I mean, like you said, it's about, you know, talking about them and learning about them, but do you find that it's changing the conversation you're able to have with, with prospects? Um, a, a little bit. The times that it's come up there, it's mostly been with the donors who are closest to me that I'm, um, we're situated in downtown Rochester and there's a lovely neighborhood just across the street from, from my school. And in that neighborhood are a lot of my donors. Um, and those are the folks that I know really well. And I know them because I see them at the coffee shop and also I know them professionally. So some of those folks that I know really well, um, they're, they're familiar with the research work and they're curious about it. Uh, it's not something I, I jump right into with people, um, with donors. I think where, where it's changing um, my perception is that when you're a 
a fundraiser, man, you've got to love your mission. You've got to buy into the work you're doing because you've got to wake up at 5 a.m. to catch, oh no, the flight's at 5 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> you've got to wake up to catch that flight at 5 a.m. I've got to say goodbye to my family. I've got to do all, all these things. I, I better believe in the work that I'm doing in order to do this well. I, since I started this degree program, and this isn't a warm, fuzzy story, I'm sorry to say, but I'm really learning about the negative impressions that higher education as a whole has on the work that we do. And this isn't anything new, right? We kind of get the sense if a dean brushes us off or a faculty member says, I'm not doing that dinner. So, you know, we have those experiences. Um, or we hear faculty talking about endowments and they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. We know that people don't, might not understand or higher education as a whole might not understand the work that we do, but to be in academic conferences, to hear experts misrepresent this profession, this division, this is where I'm coming home with uh, a lot to chew on which is not like you're sitting on both sides of the table at, at the same yes. time, given the day. What's an example of a misperception that uh, most people in the advancement sector just sort of take as fact that is just wildly misrepresented when, when you're on the conference circuit in the academic arena? I think it has a lot to do with the skills necessary to do this job. The misperception that, oh, you're just going to have wine with somebody or you're just going to schmooze. So the words schmoozing, um, that that's the work that we do. The lack of understanding of the skill set, the questions that we ask, the planning that we do, the structure of the development shop, that there are researchers, that there is a web of activity for our donors to engage with before a major gift officer even sees them. Um, I think that there's also misconception around the work that we do and that we are all fundraisers. We are all admissions officers. We are all public relations officers. We represent everything. So when a faculty member or a staff member makes a joke at the expense of fundraising, the harm that, the harm that they're doing, that that it is our, all of our, and this is me preaching from a fundraising standpoint, maybe it shouldn't be, maybe we shouldn't all be fundraisers, but um, the, that they can really set the tone for an alumnus's re uh, relationship with the institution. Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting given that there is such pressure around revenue and student loans and, and, and everything that you see in the, in the headlines that are not positive around higher ed, um, certainly not in faculty's best interest to do anything to potentially harm, you know, revenue opportunities um, at a time like this. Right. Also, the, I don't know if there's an understanding, and this is where it's on us. So Brent, I'm not blaming any faculty member. It is the, it is the responsibility of the advancement shop to, to communicate and to build partnerships and build relationships and to do the education necessary. Well, we're not going to do internal education. Well, you might. <laughs> what's the what's the cost of doing internal education when you need to get on the road and visit? Right. Partners? And if the only time that they, not the only time, but if the majority of time that they are interfacing with the advancement team, wine is being served or lunches are being had, it's easy to understand why they would have that perception without ever having a window into 
what really happens behind the scenes to even decide you know who who gets invited to that event and what the outreach strategy is and and you know they probably don't have a good understanding of, of wealth ratings or engagement scores or any of that and frankly they shouldn't have to because that's your job right it, it's like but at the same time if they don't appreciate that there's more to the story maybe it hurts your potential there's also a I've run into a lot of situations not so these stories aren't always at my institution it's with a lot of other faculty um, where the concept of any gift is a good gift is just so foreign the oh well you're not fundraising for my program you're not fundraising for my department that doesn't matter so we've heard of all of these beautiful mega gifts in our field for the past what probably two years they're they're really starting to become mega mega gifts and i was at a conference and i saw somebody with a name tag from one of these institutions and i walked right up to him and i said so what do you think about the gift and he said what gift and i said the gift and i explained it and he said oh that's not going to my department and that's what I'm coming home with now. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Oh, so you don't even recognize what hundreds of millions of dollars could do for, for you, for the financial health of your institution, how that funding can then free up other funding possibly, that even if it didn't go to your department, that that's not still a really impactful, significant um, financial bearing uh, gift to your school that that's not something worth celebrating so I so I think the disconnect is bigger than we think between the work that are that we're doing and our institution now if we're a smaller school if faculty are super engaged and they get it and they're giving themselves I know that there's a that there are a lot of different ways that this relationship can come about well, you were just talking about the mega gifts. Let's, it, it doesn't have to be a mega gift, but one thing yeah. I'm curious to better understand, and maybe this is where some of the disconnect with, you know, with faculty and other stakeholders emerges, is very few people get a window into what happens with the donor, right? When you're sitting across the table, when you're trying to secure the gift or build a relationship, and I'm curious if there are particular gifts that you've secured or that you've been a part of that really stand out as being particularly memorable, either because they were really challenging or because it went better than you thought or it went way worse than you thought. I'm just curious if, if you know, you think back on, on your career, like what are some of the gifts that really stand out? Uh, I, I pride myself in that relationship building and maybe bringing someone back, uh, the donor, and I'm thinking of a couple that made a, a nice gift, made a, you know, established a fund, but then were just put into the normal stewardship track. What does that mean? Like, be more specific, like, how much are they giving, sure. and what is a normal stewardship track? Oh, they established an endowment maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So it would have been our endowment level at that time would have been 50 grand. So something like that, maybe 25. 2000, 20 years ago, meaningful. Very meaningful gifts. Scholarship, memorial scholarship. 
um, so important to them. Um, and then when I say normal stewardship track, I mean that they were receiving invitations, they were receiving um, an endowment report, but they didn't have a gift officer to them. I don't, maybe it was one of those situations where somebody tried a few times and then they put in the wrong bucket. And my work in going back, finding them, starting a conversation, not sure why they hadn't been engaged or why they hadn't had a relationship in the past two decades. Um, navigating that at first is always a little tricky. You don't know if something went down or you don't know if you were bumped on their priority list. And really now the relationship after four years, the relationship is just one of the best relationships that, that we have with, with a donor, meaning they're working on our behalf, they're hosting events, they're, they've started another scholarship fund, they've brought their friends into the mix, they are representing Eastman to different organizations. We've asked them to sit on different philanthropy councils and that type of thing. With all of the, the organizations that they were supporting when we first met, Eastman has really risen on their priority list. And the most satisfying part of that work is the role that Eastman plays in their life. And I really mean this, and I know that it's super cheesy, but to get an email the day after they attend a concert, who they're not musicians, the day after they attend a concert or a masterclass, and for them to share with me why it was so special, why it was so meaningful. I know that this place, that these students, that these musicians have made such a huge impact on their lives and that their lives are better because they have this music in their lives and these now these people in their lives. I work really hard to make sure they have relationships other than me. <laughs> so look, their, their lives are better, right? The students' lives are better. They, they are bringing friends into the mix. Their lives are better. And it all happened because you were able to uncover this sort of lapsed relationship. Something sparked your interest enough to go and pursue it. Um, talk me through their initial reaction. I imagine there was some skepticism or a little bit of where have you been and, and how do you sort of um, push through that to really both reflect on the past and listen to their concerns with the past but also try to move forward. And how do they know you're not just a flash in the pan fundraiser who's showing back up after you know 20 years of you know normal stewardship. But you, you brought up a few things there. The first was the exact quote of where have you been? Let's, let's look at that. You, where have you been? What are they saying? If we searched all contact reports ever just for the term where have you been? Would that be a common <laughs> search we might find? Uh, I don't know if gift officers are going to write that in there. You That's have like the real contact report. Write, the unwritten contact reports to yeah. like All right, so where media. have you been? Great starter. So they so they said, where have you been? And the relation started with just one of them. They didn't even bring in their spouse until it was sort of figuring things out. So the where have you been comment, I was able, I was new enough in, in my role here to say something along the lines of, I've been brought into this job to really find our supporters to thank them and to see what how they would like to be engaged with Eastman, if at all. 
I'm so glad that we're here eating the salad. <laughs> I hope that you get to, you know, that you find the right fit. But that was slow and steady. That was a lot of little interactions. If you looked at the contact report for, if you looked at this record, you would see every little invitation, every little message, every little forwarding of an article. Um, that's that. That was the that was the little the little steps, the tiny steps along the way. And then you can gain momentum, and then you can have a good conversation. And it didn't take that long. I don't. Um, they don't buy that every relationship requires a long, hard struggle. I think sometimes people are ready to go and that it's your job to meet their pace, um, to identify their pace and then meet their pace. Um, but with these guys right at the front, uh, I had to do some relationship building and some trust building. The other thing that you said that was interesting was flash in the pan. And we have to remember that for some of these folks, we're the 18th gift officer that they've met. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That because of uh, the turnaround in our profession, um, and that's not the case. That's not the case where I am. That's not always the case. Some people have these long, gorgeous relationships. But in some instances, the turnover is just bonkers. And it means that if you're showing up and you're saying, I'm here representing the institution and I'm responsible for meeting all of the people in Boston. Coming on strong, sometimes if you know that they've met with every gift, if every single one of your predecessors um, coming on strong sometimes feels like the wrong move to me. You, you actually just, you sparked an idea for, for a, some sort of analysis. I'd like to know which prospect, which individual prospect across our system has had the most unique prospect managers over time. So I'm going to see if we can get at that. Uh, and, and 18, you throw out 18th, and, and maybe that's uh, about the right number, because that's that's definitely not a stretch. Uh, uh, I, I think that was a bit of an exaggeration. We'll see. We'll see. The data won't lie. Um, and, and, and so what I am struck by in your story is Eastman is not a, a massive organization within the large University of Rochester. They make a $50,000 scholarship 20 years ago. Um, and had you, like when you think about the opportunity cost of not reestablishing that relationship 10 years ago or 15 years ago, right? You've done it now. You've done it over the last four years. And it's fair to say that between um, the way that you're improving their life, it sounds like they're going to be making additional philanthropic con contributions today and probably more down the road, maybe there's a plan giving opportunity someday, and they're bringing friends in the mix who are making gifts today, and maybe some of those are planned gifts down the road. There are hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of revenue being influenced because you were able to go respark this one relationship. And it just makes me wonder how much, um, and, and I'm gonna try to say this in the right way, how much money are we leaving on the table by not fostering those relationships and putting people into normal stewardship tracks. Um, and at the same time, back to your point of what's best for the donor, their lives, you know, their lives could have been more fulfilling sooner, right? They could have influenced more students years ago and been more connected to this community. And so it's really sort of a loss on both sides of the equation. Obviously they were finding other philanthropic 
causes and, and, and so forth, but Eastman could have been a bigger part of their lives sooner. How do we address that? Because I think that you know, we've done some, some analysis across our customer base, and something like 0.5% or, or, or less of constituents have gift officers assigned to them, 0.5% or less. And so that means even people who've made meaningful memorial scholarships are basically getting direct marketing you know, appeals and, and follow-ups from a stewardship perspective, but it is that one-to-one -one relationship building that allowed you to bring them back into the fold. How many other folks are sitting out there in the normal stewardship track waiting to be brought closer to the institution, and, and how do we address that? Well, that's, that's the big question. That's the anxiety question. I was just thinking how many prospects are in my portfolio right now that I'm not doing a good enough job with. Yeah, I did a bang up job with those guys. I'll admit it. But who are the other people who I'm overlooking? And that's the priority question. And I don't know if running through our prospect list and, you know, running through our travel and just disqualifying, disqualifying, disqualifying is the way to go about it. We have to consider the gift officer 10 years from now, 20 years from now, who's going to be in this job. We have to consider the long-term relationship with the institution. At the same time, uh, I don't think donors always think that this is a long-term relationship, right? They think that they're making this gift. And maybe it's the gift that they just made on day of giving, or maybe it was their annual fund gift that they just moved from 500 to 1,000. And that was a pretty big deal for them. But this is the 30th year that they've given and their beautiful um, bequest prospects. How do we treat that one gift? From beginning to end, how do we treat that one gift? I think a lot of the way that major gift officers talk is like, this big, beautiful relationship. Well, did you steward the day of giving gift? Did you pick up the phone and call them? The, this is the to-do list that runs through my head. Totally, look, it's interesting. I was chatting with a, with a foundation CEO recently and she was sharing that uh, it's somewhat ironic because on their day of giving, they had a program where you know she would be tweeting thank yous to the donors and it was this really cool, like all hands, social media stewardship plan. and. And she said, you know, it's interesting because I was doing better personalized stewardship to a $100 day of giving supporter. If somebody had sent us a check for $7,500 the week before, there's no chance they would have heard from me, right? That would have gone into our, you know, at this level, send a letter and maybe the, you know, the letter's a little bit nicer, but that personalized stewardship was reserved for the day of giving, leadership on down. And why is that the case? Like, why can't every day be a day of giving in, in the way we think about, you know, the energy and the, um, the, the personalized nature of outreach? Um, why is it okay to put people into normal stewardship tracks 364 days of the year below a certain gift threshold that is just not as fun or not as inspiring or not getting the job done at bringing that couple you mentioned back into the fold sooner? Right. And I think it's really I mean, what it comes down to and, and the crux is it is the human element. I mean, we love data. We love sentiment. We love social media. We love digital. We love all these things. But if it doesn't result in a human connecting with another human, 
the odds that that really converts to something special in philanthropy are, are just very low. And I think that's the big issue is we see with the growth of digital, with the growth of, of um, social media, it has never before been easier to reach people and engage them and get them aware of what is happening at Eastman. And it's almost like now we have too many leads. We have too many prospects. We're not increasing our staff sizes accordingly and therefore a whole bunch of people in the middle of the pyramid in particular are being left behind. And, and they're, they're hidden in plain sight. Sometimes enterprising gift officers like you, you know, find them, but how many more are waiting to be re-engaged? Absolutely, and the work that we do now transfers long-term, um, or the work we don't do now transfers long-term. So when you think about, let's talk about long-term, short-term, when you think about this advancement sector, and when you think about areas that, that the sector invests too much in, what are things that we're doing, and it doesn't have to be Eastman specific, you've, you've had exposure to a lot of institutions, but what are we spending too much time, money, effort on for too little return? And at the same time, if you could wave a magic wand and double down in certain areas, what would you do? I mean, where are the areas that we're under-investing in? I'll start with the where we should be investing more. I think we should be investing more in the study of our profession. I think that more vice presidents of advancement, I'm talking case 50, I'm talking the top VPs. I think it's their responsibility to support research in this field and to move that research into practice. Are there any leaders within that group that you think are more progressive in that regard or, or hard to say? Hard to say just because I don't know for sure. I know that there's an increased trend of VPs of advancements with EDDs or with doc doctoral degrees. And I think that that's wonderful. That means that they, they have their, their doctorate. They've been exposed to this kind of research, but really moving it into practice. I think it's going beyond a regional conference or going beyond the, the conferences in our field, but saying in order for us to be, be a profession, we need some real standards. We need real ethics. We need real professional development that isn't just somebody like Anna's fundraising school and we're gonna talk about stewardship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about empirical academic research that's being sponsored or supported in some ways. And I feel extremely supported by my institution that is allowing me to study philanthropy through my doctorate, through my PhD. And so it's that type of investment in your people that it's only gonna give back. Um, it's only gonna give back to your shop, to your data, to your analysis, and to your, to your gift officers. So I think there's a deficit there. You specifically use the word ethics. I'm just curious why that's something that stands out to you. Um, you. You wouldn't suggest that if you didn't feel like there were blurry, you know, blurred lines or, or you know, unclear expectations on, on certain fronts. I mean, what's your, what's your perspective on that? Anything you can share? So there's a, there was a study, I think, in 2017 in voluntary support for nonprofits um, called Understanding Higher Education Fundraisers, and I don't have the authors here. They were from um, Indiana University School of, Lilly School of Philanthropy, and they identified after, uh, after polling, after researching higher education gift officers, they were able to say what, what do gift officers want? One of the things that we've already talked about is they want their 
families, their friends, their peers, higher education, to have a better understanding of what they do so that we're not always getting the um, used car salesman comments or the, hey, watch your wallet, Anna's coming, that kind of thing. And I got that last week. We want education and we want knowledge around our field. So we're not sitting in meetings where somebody says, there's an art and a science to this. Yeah, we know that. We're looking for real data-driven, again, research-driven work that tells us how best to do this job. Best practices have their place. Hearing how somebody else ran a golf tournament, super helpful. I'm not saying that that needs to go away, but I think as a profession, we're being called upon to do smarter work um, and that that's where this comes from. Donors or fundraisers want to understand what donor-centered means. They want to know and they want to have the tools to take care of their donors so that they don't just have to throw them into the stewardship pool and never see them again, but at the same time make use of their time and also really looking for this professional development support. Another thing that you're asked about ethics, the other thing that fundraisers want are clear defined ethics. So we have some of our professional organizations have outlined um, bill of rights or ethics, that type of thing. That's important, that's good, that's leading in the right direction. Have we all adapted those? Another question is, is it ethical to take somebody's money and then not talk to them again? That ties back into that donor work that we are their charity. What do we owe them when they make that day of giving gift of a hundred bucks? What do we owe them when they, make, when they give us a mega gift that totally transforms our institution? So I think that, that there are ethical questions all around. That there's the, they're the really dicey ones, there are the, the flashy one ethical questions that come in play with what we're giving back donors those types of stories, but I think that there's ethical questions that we deal with every single day because we are dealing with people's intentions, people's value, and their money. On the other hand, where do you think we're investing too much in today? So clear that you think more of a research approach, which obviously aligns with your with your interests and, and work. Oh, totally um, self-serving. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, I get it, right? I mean, that's part of what shapes our our perspective on these things. And and on the other hand, where are we overinvesting today? And and maybe it's golf tournaments. Um, but uh, anything else come out? I don't. When I when I hear that question, I don't know if I can just point my finger to a gala or a golf tournament or something like that, which uh, I don't ever want to do. <laughs> but if that function serves the donor group, if that's what they want, then that's a wonderful use of money and time. I think what we're wasting is time. I think we're wasting a lot of time sending birthday cards. I think we're wasting a lot of time writing letters that might not be opened. Um, I think we're wasting a lot of time pulling lists, inviting people that haven't replied to the last 87 invitations we've sent them, but we haven't picked up the phone to call them to find out why. I think that everyone is doing their absolute best. I think that I look at my colleagues here and at other institutions, and I'm so grateful for organizations 
like CASE and AFP to be, to be connected with my colleagues and I see the incredible work that they're doing. Um, I think that you're right though, that some of this work is uncovering a lot of relationships and a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities and running with the, these opportunities while asking the question, is this the right thing? Is this the right reach? Is this the right message? Um, I think that it's, uh, I think that it's really hard. I think we do really important, I think fundraisers and higher ed do really important work. And I also think that, um, that it can be tricky. Okay, let's talk about, um, you're going to Michigan tomorrow, at, at, at flight leaves at 5 a.m., so you're up a lot earlier than that. You, you've, you've traveled around the country, you know, maybe around the world. Um, what, it, what is one or two of your most memorable visits? When you think about either places you've been, people you've been with, um, just, just awesome experiences, what, what really stands out? Uh, this, is, this has been a fun ride. It's, um, I think because of the nature of some of the programs that I was supporting, uh, that I was working for uh, at a technical institution, I was able to visit a lot of really cool places um, I'm lucky that I had prospects at the Pentagon and at UN. And um, also I've been at a certain Olive Garden in Dallas about five times. So uh, I've, seen, I've seen it all. I've been lucky to, to be with people in really cool spots and to hear their stories. My favorite prospects are the ones that are really meaningful and emotional because that's who I am. So. My donors uh, at Eastman who met when they, who are in their 90s and they met their first day of theory class. And they've had these beautiful careers and they've established a $500,000 gift in their bequest. They're not going to support Eastman while they're alive, but they have a wonderful bequest intention set up. But to check in with them, um, to see them every time every time that I'm in their town, but to hear how Eastman is so intertwined in their lives, that first visit with them really stands out because they credit so many, so many aspects of their life and who they are. They define themselves by this place, this place that I get to represent. Um, so that meeting with them really showed me the kind of value that people associate with their school. Not everybody, um, but definitely this couple. And it's interesting that you say you're continuing to see them because I, I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but they've made a bequest, they're in their 90s, they've been really clear that they're not, there's probably not more to do uh, while they're alive. Um, it is sad to say, but it'd probably be pretty easy to not go and visit those people every time that you're in their town. And so is that a, a tension that you see in the sector as well? Um, uh, and, and it's great and, and um, you know amazing that you do do that. It, it's obviously the right thing to do. It's the right thing for them. But is that the kind of thing that in the midst of the hustle and trying to hit this year's numbers or this year's goals, one thing to cut is stewarding the, the, the family that has made the bequest and there's nothing more to do and we just got to focus on the next gift. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah, so my my supervisor might say, why are you seeing them again? I'm not seeing them every month. I'm seeing them every year. Uh, that's where our individual values come into play. 
I really think that that's true. And if that means that I need to wake up earlier and get another visit, which I did the last time I was there, um, if I'm hitting my metrics, which I am, um, then that's the question you have to ask. And that's the kind of fundraiser I want to be, Brent. I want to do the right thing. Um, I want to call on that couple. And I spent an hour with them. And they gave me a banana nut muffin that didn't taste good. And we, <laughs> and we drank a half a cup of coffee. And that hour that I was with them was wonderful. I was able to share with them what was going on. I was able to thank them one more time for what they've done for our place, for our school. And I hope that that conversation, that the, those memories, some of the conversation about the music, I hope that that was the highlight of their week. And for what they're going to do, they deserve an hour of my time. But you're absolutely right. I mean, these, these questions of priority come up every minute, every, every day. And I have seen a lot of people who do it really well, um, but I haven't seen anybody that's perfected it. And part of that, I think, is how we assess the work that we do. So the metrics that we live, live and die by are all quantitative metrics but who are the people that are out there that are doing qualitative metrics? Who are the people that are asking questions of donors of, hey, I know you met with Anna last week. How did that, how was your conversation with her? Or taking a really close look at those contact reports to say what, what words are coming up or who is, who has, what you said, who has said, where have you been? It, it's interesting you say that because it, it, this is a, a high touch you know, concierge-like role in, in many regards, especially in the major gift context. And if you think about how common it is in other parts of our life, right, if you go to a, a nice hotel, um, you would expect afterwards, uh, you, you might get a survey, a text message or email saying, hey, we'd love feedback on your experience, rated on a one to 10, what was the level of professionalism, uh, professionalism, et cetera. At one point, we actually kicked around the idea of like, what if after every visit that is logged in Evertrue, we sent a text message to the donor saying, please, you know, rate your experience with Anna one to 10 or all of the things that donors would constantly be surveyed about in every other part of our, li uh, of our lives. And uh, even that concept sort of terrified people. It was like, wait, you're gonna ask the donor what they thought of meeting me and it was like well, I don't know it was just an idea like how else would you know if like maybe you thought the meeting was great and they went back to their spouse and said it was a horrible experience like how do we know yeah so, you know it sounds like you we would... don't want to we don't want to be yelped yeah right right but here's but, the but, but why not if you really care about what the donors you know feel maybe a scale of one to ten is one way of look, looking at it but I I think too, if there is a way for us to understand what the donors want, what they need. Um, Jeffrey Bartlett is a PhD and major gift officer at University of Buffalo, or he's a SVP or VP over at University of Buffalo. And his dissertation was on, was access to high level donors at an institution and their response to what they thought of a gift officer. So he did this, he did this research. Um, and it's not pretty guys, <laughs> it's not good. We're dropping the ball, we're telling people we're gonna do things and then we don't do them or 
we're talking about ourselves too much or, you know, these, um, I don't know the exact findings of this study. I'm sure that they're much, um, they're better than that. But um, it is it is scary when we uncover what we're doing sometimes, but then we also have examples. We have those, those donors and those relationships that would really be handled the right way. But we are being asked to raise more money, get the money in the door, get the cash in the door. You are contractually obligated by your institution. You are being, you are being paid to do this work. Raise the money. So is me, you know, me going to visit those, those folks, is that well worth my time? Here's why I know it's worth my time. The value, the warm feel good aside, I know that they are giving to a lot of other organizations at smaller levels. I know that he was just asked to join a board. I know because the wife whispered it to me that he's being asked to give in other areas, which I could have figured out in our conversation. Um, if we want to, if we want to play competitive and metrics and numbers based right now, game on. Our game is continuing. I should say, we're in the running. Just because we're in that estate, just because we, you know, he sent us paperwork however many years ago, doesn't mean that that's still the case. How I've got to hold on to that relationship, and I've got to, especially with the new information that I have now, I've got to. I've got to work to keep that gift. And I think with all of our bequest gifts, we book it, yay, you get credit, you ring the bell, but that's, that's not the reality of the gift. That's not the reality of the relationship with the donor. They're not thinking, oh, I'm done now. I'll die in 30 years and everything will be fine. <laughs> that's not what they're thinking. Gotta play the long game. Well, in the spirit of, getting you back out there, raising the money. Uh, we should probably wrap up relatively soon, but I would say, uh, you know, are you hiring at Eastman or when you think of University of Rochester more broadly, what's the pitch for, for why uh, fundraisers listening should consider uh, moving upstate and, and joining the team? We have an incredible team of really hardworking professionals who are making, who are making this happen, who are raising some really fun, meaningful um, funds for this institution. I think it's really easy to buy into the mission of University of Rochester, the, the research agenda. Um, also, we're under the leadership of Tom Farrell, who I mentioned a lot of folks have that EDD or that PhD. Um, he's one of those folks and he's driven, he's, he's focused on making our development shop one of the leading development shops in the nation. I think we have really engaged, smart, great prospects, and that helps a lot. If your job is to meet with 100 of them a year or 150 of them a year, it really helps to have folks who, who care about the world around them and who are working hard to, to make the world a better place. But it's an exciting place to be. I'm excited to be a part of this team. and. Um, and here at Eastman, it's, it's a, it truly is an honor uh, to serve the faculty here, to serve the students here. Um, we have incredible musicians who are putting so much good out into the world through their music that to be able to meet them, represent them is an honor. It's a good gig.
It sounds great. And uh, your, your energy uh, is reflected in, in your comments today. Can't thank you enough for giving us a window uh, into your world. And I hope you'll bring your clarinet to the Rays conference in Boston <laughs> fall. Maybe, maybe there could be a, a quick interlude uh, no. during the show. But uh, we look forward to, to hopefully seeing you then. Uh, staying in touch between now. And with that, we're going to wrap the Rays podcast. Thank you, Anna Schlea, Senior you. Director of Advancement for the University of Rochester Eastman School of Music.